This is episode 226 with one of the fastest and most consistent milers in history, the only person to run a sub four minute mile for 19 years in a row and two time Olympic medalist, Mr. Nick Willis. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and the episode you're about to listen to features a great role model in the sport, Nick Willis. Nick has the record for running a sub-four-minute mile for 19 years straight, and he's going after year number 20 at the Midnight Mile New Year's Eve Gala at the Armory in New York City. Nick is a 38-year-old father of two, and I found his insights on running longevity, staying healthy, the wisdom that comes from decades in the sport, and consistency to be remarkably helpful, and I hope you do too. Now, if you're new to the podcast, you can expect conversations just like this between me and other thought leaders in the running industry. My goal is to elevate your thinking about the sport, help you make wiser decisions about your training so that you can keep improving. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. Strength Running also has an active YouTube channel with hundreds of videos on how to run longer, strength workouts, how to stay healthy, and run with better form, and a lot more. Go to youtube.com slash strengthrunning, subscribe, and you'll see every video that we publish. And of course, strengthrunning.com is where it all began. For more than a decade, we've been helping runners around the world level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award-winning blog, our free email courses, and the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. This episode is sponsored by our partner Inside Tracker, one of the world's best blood testing organizations. They test for more than 40 different biomarkers and then present you with personalized zones for each of those biomarkers. If you happen to fall outside of any zone, they then offer science-backed recommendations to improve them. You can get 25% off any of their tests when you go to insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning. All right, my guest today probably needs no introduction. Nick Willis is the 2008 Olympic silver medalist in the 1500 and the 2016 Olympic bronze medalist in the same distance. With a PR of 329, he's one of the fastest 1500-meter runners in history. He also has an interesting record of being the most consistent miler in history, having run a sub-four mile for the last 19 years straight. On December 31st, he'll be attempting his 20th year of sub-four miles at the Armory in New York City. Tracksmith is hosting a New Year's Eve gala for a night of celebration, racing, and of course, champagne. In this episode, we're discussing Nick's very proactive approach to injury management, what that says about his longevity in the sport, our combined love for playground fitness, and how he's stayed competitive in an event like the Mile that so favors the young. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Nick Willis. Nick Willis, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Jason. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to to chat with you. Um, I got to tell you, I last night I rewatched the final of the 2016 Olympic 1500 with my eight year old daughter because she wanted to know who I was going to talk to on the podcast today. And right before bed, 
you know, we're going crazy watching the race. And, you know, I kept telling her, there's Nick, he's, he's going to get third in the race. And she was like, he's so far back. And I'm like, just wait, he's fast. <laughs> and I, I did get in trouble a little bit because we got quite riled up right before bedtime, but I think it was for a good cause. <laughs> yeah. And my wife always makes sure that I um, don't play games in the basement right before bedtime, but it, it, they get a second wind, right? It's, it's too hard to, to not capitalize on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can't watch race recaps or re sprint finishes in the Olympics right before bed. That's a no, no. Um, but I'm excited to get into this with you, Nick, because, uh, there's two things I really want to talk to you today and, and both are about longevity from certain perspectives. And I want to start with a really fascinating tweet thread that you published on Twitter at the end of October about a, a minor calf strain that you had. So maybe we can just start with your story of what happened, how you irritated your calf, and then we can move on to you know how you approached it. Because I think in your approach are so many lessons for runners that I think are super valuable. Yeah, I, I think I'll preface it by saying even though I'm older I feel like I'm in general more healthy than I was when I was younger primarily because I've learned lessons of what not to do and I've become wiser how to like manage these processes at least for my body anyway and so that was definitely the experience that I had um, with this particular injury so I was at the Chicago Marathon um, working for Tracksmith we had, had a pop-up there and we were busy um, working retail for the week um, and I went for a run with one of my colleagues early in the morning in Chicago there's a elevated running path on one of the old rail lines uh, I don't know, I even know what it's called um, and what was unique about it is on the outside of the two bike paths they had Mondo track maybe like a foot and a half 18 inches on either side I was like oh cool I'm going to do an 8 mile run on the track running along but it was also pouring with rain um, and so every single step I was taking, I would hit the track and I run on my toes anyway. And then I'd skid forward maybe an inch, um, with every step and the run went great. Got home. I was like, Oh, my car's pretty tight. Um, that's a bit funky. I wonder what happened. And then by the end of the day, when I'd finished working retail that day, like I was limping around like, Oh, what's up. And anytime I like even thought about like, testing it with a little jog like it would ping on me right in that on one particular spot in my calf so it's like okay i've got i don't know 10 weeks until i'm trying to run a sub four minute mile on new year's eve um i can't really afford to, to miss a lot of time here but at the same time i can afford to miss a week if i have to so i thought okay i'm gonna just see what happens and so basically the approach that i've been taught by my my best friend is also a physiotherapist. He lives in Australia. We grew up together and his mantra that he picked up from somebody else and excuse my French, but he'd say, calm shit down, build shit up. So the idea with 99% of injuries is you like, you reduce the inflammation, you let it calm down with rest. And then you have to re-strengthen the tissue or the fibers or whatever it is with, um, with appropriate level exposure to resistance training and that's staggered in stages, right? And so basically when I did a similar thing a couple of years ago, he got me doing eccentric and concentric calf races four times a day. So that's what I started doing. Whenever I was at, uh, at work, um, working retail in Chicago, I was doing these eccentric and concentric calf races four or five times a day, three sets of 20 and must've looked funny when I was holding the, 
the men's apparel rack as I was trying to gain balance to do it. Um, and I would take a, I'd take a day off and the next day I'd, I went for a run and I'd be able to go 10 minutes with no pain. Then suddenly I'd feel my calf start seizing up on me. So I'd stop and walk home. And I'd kept doing these these calf races um, really diligently, um, and that was the same pattern. Every I'd run every other day, and I'd add another ten or fifteen minutes, and it ended up being by the end of about ten days, I was up to sixty minutes with no pain, and I had built up a lot of strength during these calf races over the time. And I was able to add resistance to it, holding thirty five pound dumbbells um, in both hands eventually, um, and then I was able to do with in the squat rack do calf raises that way and get a ton of resistance and then i was able to eventually test myself out and do some strides and build into sprints and then two weeks after the calf injury i was ready to do a full speed workout with guys who were at the olympic trials in the 800 meters so basically i ended up not really missing any training i maybe missed six or seven days total but um but I never had any setbacks. And that was that's probably the biggest lesson that I've learned over the years. If you have a, a calculated strength plan to re- recover, you don't have these secondary or third sort of setbacks that so many people have, especially with calves. Um, so I was really fortunate to to get the timing right, I suppose. Yeah, I think this is a really great example of you knowing your body and understanding when you have this this little niggle that could potentially turn into a much more serious injury and you nipped it in the bud you you treated it very well you calmed things down so that it didn't get any worse how do how can runners best understand when they can run through something and when something is is best to be left alone and you should help calm things down. Is there a certain rule that you have or, or maybe a, a set of rules for knowing when it's okay to run through some type of discomfort or niggle or, or maybe minor pain? I mean, I'm probably at the extreme end where I actually don't think any pain is good. But the, the big distinguishing factor is, is it pain from an injury or is it pain from DOMS? DOMS meaning delayed onset of muscle soreness, right? So if I go and do 50 push-ups right now and I haven't done push-ups for a while, I'm going to be sore for the next three or four days, maybe even a week in my pecs. You can get DOMS in your legs as you suddenly do a new exercise that you haven't done for a while. That's not an injury. That's just a lot of microfiber tears in a really minute fashion. But you can run through that side of things. But if you've actually got some sort of injury, even if it's only a two out of ten, I am of the opinion that you should never really challenge yourself and think, oh, hopefully it will slowly get better. Like strengthen up. Like you, if it's only two out of 10, that means it will be zero out of 10 in a couple of days. Um, I'm fortunate, however, that I've never had Achilles tendonitis issues. And that perhaps is the one that is actually the research says that it's better to within reason train through like don't go nuts on it obviously but a little bit of exercise is better than not doing anything um but i've always been in the opinion if you're sick or injured take two or three days off then reevaluate things afterwards it's never really going to hurt you long term to to miss a couple of days anyway yeah and coming from you i think that's even more powerful you know because you've been such a, a star in the sport for so long and i think that that holds a lot more weight um now I'm curious, Nick, if you know you're someone who running is such a big part of your livelihood, and and I know that this calf issue started when you were slipping around, you were running in the rain, 
Did you ever think that during the run that maybe this run was too risky for you? How do you make that decision of, of whether or not you should continue with a run or, or maybe go outside or run at all because of the weather, because of the surfaces that are available to you might just create a situation that's simply too risky from an injury perspective. How do you make that calculus? Yeah. In hindsight, I did, I exposed my body to a new stimulus that it wasn't ready for. And that was running on a track surface that was wet, that was causing my foot to slide forward. So I was actually giving a a different exposure to stress that had ever experienced. And so As an athlete, and if I were to advise coaches or other athletes, my number one thing is work backwards. If you need to be doing this in three months' time, what are all of the different baby steps to be able to slowly build up to that amount of stress and exposure? The human body is incredible at at adapting to different stresses, but only if you give it enough gradual time to expose it. So that's where I think getting in the weight room, doing a lot of movements that your body is not always doing when it's running and like gradually increase it. Not just people always know about slowly increasing your volume from a mileage standpoint, but they don't think about slowly increasing your exposure to stress or load in other areas. Um, And that's where in the weight room is really good time to prepare for like the unforeseen injuries, like grabbing heavy luggage off of the carousel at the airport, you could pull out your back or um, running on the on the wet track or having a sudden steep downhill as part of a run that a friend takes you on. If, you, if you're always slowly exposing yourself to small amounts of that, then you build up this incredible tolerance. The best way to be healthy is to have um, weeks and weeks and weeks of health before that because that's all building on layer upon layer upon layer of this like, resilience in all of your muscle tissue and bones um, from doing all those other things. That's why I'm a big believer in playing other sports is really healthy. I'm being a, I'm a huge benefactor of being a father that I have a three-year-old and an eight-year-old that when my child first started going to the playground, he was doing very minimal stuff. He'd like crawl up the steps, right? And then go down the slide so I would crawl slowly with him and I'd go through the little tunnel like, you can do it. Good job, Lockie. But then as he became three and four years old, he was like tearing his way around the playground. But as his body slowly got stronger and stronger to do all of the other stuff, I was really gradually being exposed to doing all of the stuff that now that he's eight and they at full speed playing tag around the playground, I can do everything that an eight-year-old kid can do in a playground now because I've had eight years to slowly build my body up to handling that stuff. Whereas when I was 25, if you'd got me to get to do that same activity in the playground, I would have gotten injured right away because I hadn't like had that gradual adaptation to all of these different movements and stuff. So that's when they talk about dad strength. I actually think that is where it comes from in part because you, you reintroduce all of these like full body movements that we move away from when we're no longer kids. Kids just do that every day anyway, and we should as adults, but we get stuck into a very linear or like very um, limited range of motion that we go through on our 24-hour cycle every day. Yeah, we we just stick to running around in circles or something similar. Whatever it is. If you're a weightlifter, you just do your six lifts. If you're a tennis player, all you do is hit your tennis balls. But we really should be putting our body through every possible range of motion every day and it will help us be healthy for our particular one thing. People say, well, I don't want to play basketball or I don't want to go skateboarding because I'll get injured. And you would if you went and did those things at a full level right away, 
But if you take the approach, like I explained with being a parent of a young child, if you slowly did it over a long period of time, like those activities will actually make you more healthy so that you can stay healthy for your primary sport. Yeah, Nick, for our listeners, I'm kind of grinning ear to ear right now with you talking about dad strength. You know, I mentioned my eight-year-old at the beginning of this episode. I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old too. And we spend a lot of time at playgrounds. And some of the most substantial soreness I've experienced over the last eight years has been because of very rough playground play. And and now just like you said, I feel like I can keep up with the best kids on the playground now. And we should put on a playground clinic uh-huh. how to stay fit on playground equipment. Seriously, it would be great. great. It would be so athletic. Can you do monkey bars still, like going second bar and all of that sort of stuff? It's hard. Oh, work absolutely. It's harder <laughs> now that we're taller because you can't drag your feet on the wood chips. I, I, I really believe like we've got a, it's a, getting old doesn't make you slower. Slowing down makes you age. Like I really believe in that sort of proverb if you call it that and that's the 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 blessing of becoming a dad for me is it's it's actually made me way more active than I used to be trampoline being on the trampoline I can do backflips and stuff all again I never tried all that when I was in my 20s yeah you were probably too worried about being injured you were prioritizing your running but I'm actually more healthy now because I'm using my body more often the other thing I was always tempted in my when I was a professional athlete and paranoid that I had to get healthy as quickly as possible, the first tendency for me, and I would guess for many of your listeners as well, is you want to prod and poke, you want to massage it out, you want to get in there and sort of like heal it up quickly. You want to stretch it or do all of these things, go get treatment. But again, my my good friend in Physio Australia is like, leave it alone. Like all you're doing is you're cre- it's like tearing a scab off of, um, your skin right you got to allow that scab to fully form and like it's okay if you get tightness and it like gets all locked up for a while but once it heals up underneath then you can finally do it and so I waited 10 days until I finally got a massage on it um, and that was really going to be the the litmus test of whether it was going to be healthy or not if the massage caused more pain then it meant there was still some um issues with the, the with the tear in my calf if it would have made it better it meant that I was finally good to go on to train hard and fortunately it was the latter yeah this is a really counterintuitive approach for a lot of runners just because it runs counter to what we want to do because we constantly want to see well does it still hurt let me test it let me just do this little one-legged hop with my leg behind my back and and if it doesn't hurt then then I'll definitely be fine and I talk to a lot of runners and, you know, this was a big part of my problem when I was running competitively myself. And you're just always testing it to see if it still hurts. And that act of testing actually delays your recovery from the injury because you're just reintroducing pain. How do you know when it's okay to actually test the tissue or do something that might be a little bit stressful? Because a big part of your recovery is doing calf raises going out for a run and and definitely cutting it when you started feeling any discomfort, but you were introducing a little bit of stress almost on a daily basis to sort of see how your calf was responding. So I'm curious how you think about that. Well, I think for my specific example with the calf, ultimately it didn't matter when I knew because I could have never had a massage on it and it would have gotten back better because ultimately the best way to heal tissue is to strengthen it. It's not to stretch it. 
it was purely for performance to get the massage on it because then it like loosened it up so it could like function at a higher level again. But in terms of it actually being healthy again, strengthening it was the primary resource. That's where we have to switch our mindset. Often we think, well, we're going to go get treatment. And treatment means they try and do electrotherapy or massages or um, icing and cooling, all of that different stuff. But all you're going to do is make that tissue stronger and stronger and stronger by doing multiple sets of um, strengthening exercises, starting with really minimal stuff initially. It might be isometrics where you're not even moving the muscle, you're just contracting it. Um, all the way through to heavy weights. Um, but ultimately, it's like ripping a scab off. There is a point where the scab will actually come off on its own, and then you know. We innately know that because we see it. You have to just be patient and be willing to learn that once you've got internal injuries as well. I think it's really interesting that you just mentioned a whole a whole plethora of treatment strategies, and they're all passive treatment strategies, massage, electric, stim, um, you mentioned also, uh, ultrasound. ultrasound, yes, there you go. And it, it, it ties into a conversation I just had with a physical therapist who, who's all about active treatment strategies. Um, the passive stuff is the icing on the cake. You could do a little bit of it, but just like you're saying right now, what's really going to make you healthy is the active treatment. It's getting stronger. It's doing the strength work. It's exposing the tissue to load and a little bit more stress. And so I, I think that approach is just far more effective. And it, it also seems, Nick, that you really know your body and what you are capable of, what you're not capable of. And you have this, it seems like this innate sense of, of knowing when to shut things down and, and when to keep going with your training. Do you think that's a big part of why you are still racing the mile and the 1500 so competitively for such a long time is that you, you respect your body and you know what it can't do. It, it could be in part to that. Um, I think one of the reasons why I've been willing to like be patient is because I have a bit of an ego. Um, I hate showing up to a race, not my best self. There's nothing worse to me than showing up where I'm 80% ready and I'm not going to be able to give a true um, performance that I know I'm capable of. Just like in college, you don't want to show up to an exam unless you know you've really prepared for it. Um, and I always felt like oh, I'm okay skipping the next couple of races that I had planned and taking some time. And like, I'm only going to be my true self if I'm actually healthy for six months and get really solid training. I don't, I don't care to show up just to show up and, and tick that box. And so my ego has probably protected me in that way. I have had some pretty major injuries, though. I've had five or six stress fractures. I've had three or four surgeries. I had my a labral tear on my hip. I had a sports hernia. I had two um, lateral meniscus tears in my knee, um, which were all significant times away. And part of my longevity, I think, stems for the fact that I actually had enforced breaks from the sport, um, where I had no choice but to go through that rehab process. And so... I feel emotionally younger than what a 38 year old who never dealt with injuries might experience. Cause I had to like re earn that fitness over an 18 month period again. Yeah. It almost sounds like that could be even more emotionally challenging just because you're dealing with the ups and downs of, of injuries. And you mentioned some substantial injuries from stress fractures to labral tears, you know, those take you out from running for such a sizable amount of time. 
I know your ego <laughs> prevents you from lining up on the race, you know, in less than perfect fitness, you know, you kind of want to be there and be there a hundred percent, but how do you think about, how do you stay motivated when you have to take such a long time period off? Um, it, it seems to me that this is when your patience really comes into uh, full power here. Yeah, it might be patience, but I also think, well, let's first of all, I'll be honest, like I grieve. It's really hard when you experience deep down in the back of your mind, you know, you've got something major going on, but then you go to the doctor and you get the scans and you're waiting for the results, praying that it's not the dreaded stress fracture or whatever, but deep down, you know, it is, and you hear the news and you have a cry and you get angry and you go through all of the grieving process. And that's, that's okay. The worst thing you can do is deny it and like double down on cross training and like some people go to 200% effort and they'll start doing double days in the pool or the bike because they, they don't want to lose their fitness they have. But like I learned, okay, I'm taking a month away from the sport, nothing to do with it whatsoever and enjoy elements of the world that I'm normally sort of closed off to. And then I'll start showing up to my physiotherapist's clinic and my physio has been like a, another family member to me when I live on the other side of the world, right? And he's become a close, close friend. And I have loving support from him and others and, and my sort of support network that's not just a prof profession for them, but there's like a an emotional support there. And then I get addicted to the sense of improvement. Um, what is beautiful about losing fitness is that you gain fitness really rapidly and you notice that progress what's hard is when you become you sort of plateau off and you it's you get stale so i actually really enjoy the process of regaining that fitness when i'm 20 pounds out overweight and i get to go for a run in the middle of the summer and you're like you're sweating like anything after 10 minutes like but then the next day you like get another 10 minutes out of it like man i'm like you want to go again and again so I think that's part of it is I've always enjoyed the improvement curve that comes from sports, whether it was me trying to lower my handicap in golf when I was a teenager or now this experience. Um, sometimes you have to experience the valleys to really enjoy the peaks. Yeah, for sure. And I always tell new runners, if you can just get over the first couple of weeks where you're not feeling good, where every run is a challenge, you'll soon start experiencing improvement. And that progress is very addicting. I mean, that's what made me fall in love with the sport as a freshman in high school. You know, I, I showed up to the cross country team in basketball shoes. I thought I was going to high jump because uh -huh. <laughs> I thought it was like track. And I, I very quickly was thrown to the wolves. And um, I loved it. I absolutely loved just feeling like I was getting better at something. And if anything, those injuries at least gave you that feeling back again. Um, Nick, I'd also like to talk a little bit about longevity from not an injury perspective, but from a performance perspective. Because one of the really fascinating aspects of your career is, is not just the fact that you've been very competitive for a very long time. It's that you've been doing it in the 1500 and the mile, which as a mid distance event, I think is, is, is almost more challenging from a physiological perspective because it requires such power and strength and speed that, you know, it, it favors youth. It certainly favors the younger guys who might be in their mid twenties. Uh, but you know, you're in the thick of it and, and I'd love to know how you think about staying competitive as you're in your mid to late thirties 
and you're still winning races, you know, you just won a, uh, an Olympic medal a couple years ago. And I'm just curious, like, how do you stay competitive in such an event that favors the younger guys? I don't know if I have the full answers to this and I'm still trying to figure it out myself, but I think ultimately the reason why people move up in distance is because it's harder to run on your own and do a lot of the ancillary training required to do the middle distances, the weight training, the sprint training, the the 400 meter interval workouts, all of that sort of stuff. When, when people get older, it's easier to find training partners or if you're on your own to just go out and hammer like a 12 mile run when you're on a lunch break for work and all that sort of element. The fact that I live in a college town still, I'm 38, but my training partners have always been the same age group. It's been the 23 to 27 year old graduate student, post-collegiate athlete who have been around the Ann Arbor, the University of Michigan. And if they're doing track work, I don't want to just be out plodding on the dirt roads. If they're going to be doing a strides day, it's more fun for me to do that. And especially with the energy of my coach, Ron Warhurst, he's always, his favorite spot is down at the track and he brings donuts and chocolate milk. Um, And so I want to be around that social element of it as well. And so I've never been too far removed from that side of the sport. And it's just always been so fun. And the truth is like my body is built to run that sort of mile pace. It, it naturally finds its, its happy place sort of running that, those speeds. So I have had temptations to move up in distance and I've given it a go a few times, but it's just easier in my particular situation to find training partners in, in that um, sphere. Whereas I don't think many other people have that luxury because they're, they're not in the college town. They're not around young people all the time. Um, and so it's just circumstances have created this sort of perfect storm, I suppose. And now I've got an, an 18 year old, the fastest ever American high schooler in the mile, Hobbs Kessler in our training group now. So I'll continue to run in a mile to help him out. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned the social aspect of it, having that group there to support you, just having a group of guys where you can run workouts with and, you know, they're setting a good example by doing their strides and their drills and their weight training and all that other work that makes, you know, your performance as possible. And, you know, I'll be the first one to say that, that that's the, those are the first things that sort of go out the window as you start. Bridging. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you just start avoiding those things as you get older. Uh, and I think it's really powerful that you found this support group that gives you the environment to run those kinds of races. You know, I was talking with one of my former college teammates and we were saying how it's easier to train for a marathon now than it is for the mile because doing the workouts that are required for a good mile performance, you need a team. You need to be on the track with a bunch of people running the same pace. You need a coach on the sidelines cheering for you and giving you feedback. It's just so much more important. And like you said, the hammering the 12 mile run is almost easy compared to, you know, that more technical, speedy, intense track work. It's really hard to get yourself up for those moments on your own. One of my favorite things I do each week now is I play in a rec basketball league and like it's the highlight of me, my week. It's so much fun. But going to the gym on your own and just shooting hoops, like that's that's really boring and you'd get sick of it after 15 minutes. But to be there with your guys and to be like trying to run set plays and set that all up, that's exactly the same with being a, a middle distance runner. You need that environment to be able to keep you motivated. Um, it, it makes it really fun rather than a drag. 
Yeah, totally. And and probably with soccer, you know, an indoor soccer rec league, basketball is one of those sports that always makes me very nervous as a coach because it's so ballistic. It's so plyometric. You're jumping, you're moving laterally, you're cutting in all directions. Is this another example of something that you used to not do because you were concerned it would make you injured, but now it's probably an ingredient to you staying healthy? Yeah, I think like my training partners are all playing as well because they were former high school stars and they're 800 meter runners. So it's actually helped them not lose their speed in the fall base training season. Um, I don't really care if I get injured now because my my wage isn't dependent on it. Um, whereas before, if I got injured in a non-track um, discipline, then I could lose a contract. So that's why I never did it. It, just, it was too much risk for my family to face. But yeah, I haven't faced any injuries. That's the funny thing because so long as you get past that first month, and I really prepared for this basketball season, I was more disciplined leading up to Tokyo because I was thinking about the fall basketball season coming up. I spent so much time in the weight room doing all of the extra lateral stuff to get my knees and hips ready to sustain me so I could enjoy basketball season without twisting my knee. Um, that that's what motivated me to do all of those little things, which I've been skipping out from a running perspective, but I do think it's actually going to aid my running now. Yeah, that's great. And as a former basketball player, someone who had to quit the sport because everyone kept growing except me, I got to say that it is inspiring to see another 38 year old getting in the, on the court and playing basketball too. (laughs) I'm terrible, but it's so much fun. It's, it's just, it's, it's fun doing a team sport again after doing an individual sport for so long. Yeah, for sure. Now, Nick, another thing I want to ask you is I think, you know, just through talking to you, you seem incredibly positive about the sport. You're still having so much fun. You're also looking outside the sport to, you know, something as simple as playing at the playground with your kids to going to play ball with some of your friends. Do you think your mindset has contributed to your longevity in the sport? I don't want to say you don't take it seriously, but you have this certain quality of there are other things I'm interested in. I'm, of course, going to train hard, but, you know, I'm going to have fun with it. And and I think that's a an important force that's helping you just compete really well into your late 30s. Yeah, I've, our training group is unique in that we have an environment where we encourage each other to talk, have smack talk and like joke around with each other, like we're not offended and no one's going to get sensitive if you're like making fun of each other every day. Cause it's done in love and in jest. It's not done to actually, it's actually to bring the unity together. And so we just love showing up to practice every day and having little jabs at each other, but we also hug it out. Um, and we, you know, we're putting in the hard work. Um, and I think that I've always tried to have that mindset. I know my limitations that I can never really focus tunnel vision for more than about six weeks so the six weeks before the olympics i'm quite a different person i'm very like zoned in and very disciplined with all elements of what i do but i get fried if i ever do more than six weeks so normally i have two six week periods in the 52 week cycle the indoor part of the season and then the right before the championships and the rest of the time i just I get the work done, but I'm just trying to have as much fun as possible. And maybe that's part of the reason why my career hasn't been very consistent in terms of a how I race in the Grand Prix season versus the championship or how I might race at a world championship season compared to an Olympics. 
but it allows me to elevate or raise my game when it really matters the most to me. Yeah. And I think the price of some of that inconsistency is a much longer career. You know, it's, you, it's ironic because it's produced more consistency in some ways, right? If you like drag out the timeline more, the graph looks pretty flat anyway. Yeah. That's a really interesting perspective on it because ultimately, you know, you would rather take some time off to heal an injury properly or maybe not train so hard to risk an injury, you know, or just be a little bit more detached from your training. If that means you might get a couple more years out of the sport and just experiencing everything that it has to offer. So I think that's powerful. Well, like if there's 30 people going for a run and 28 of them choose to take a left when we should have gone right because it's only a 13 mile run instead of a 17. When I was in college, I would always do what I had to do, the 17 mile. But in the last 10 years, I realized like, no, I'll just do what the guys are doing. And if I want, I can add on afterwards. But it's what's more long-term beneficial. And if you're having a good time, then you're going to be able to enjoy it for longer. Now, Nick, the questions everyone is wondering right now is what kind of smack talk is going on against Nick Willis? on the track with your group. Can you give us some examples of <laughs> how the team rags on you? <laughs> I don't really know what they rag on me because I just tune it out straight away. I have a great gift of not um, receiving it. I know I always <laughs> make fun of Mason Fairlick because they're like, oh, we've got an Olympian in our presence. What a great honor, Mason. Because he's pretty proud of becoming an Olympian, right? They're like, oh, we've got Hobbs Kessler, the high school record holder. Um, but yeah, they just give me a hard time about, oh, that's not bad for an old guy. <laughs> that type of stuff. They always rag on me for, I'm always, I get ready like one second before I have to be there. So I show up without any shoes on and I bring my clothes in a plastic bag because I can't find the right bag to put things in. And I've got like 50 pairs of shoes in the back of my car because I know I'll forget the right ones. So I just grab whatever shoes out the back and they might be ones from 15 years ago, some old Reeboks or something. <laughs> that they, always, they always give me a hard time for how unorganized I am. I'm like, well, I just finished a meeting. Like, I didn't have time to get ready. You guys have been waiting around all day. It is so funny to have this image of you by the track, like trying to find two matching shoes from the trunk of your car or something like that before a workout. Matching socks, forget about it. <laughs> I love it. And I work for an apparel company. I've got more clothes than anyone would ever need, but it's it's more just yeah, it's. When you got two kids, they take priority until you get a head off to the track. Yeah, I understand that for sure. Well, Nick, this has been really fun talking to you about your career and the way that you think about things. Uh, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned for our listeners. Um, let us know what do you what are you training for right now? Are you going to be running any races soon? I know you're fairly unstoppable, so you likely have some some miles coming up. I'm going to do a one mile race on the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve. Um, and so I wasn't sure if I wanted to keep racing after the Tokyo Olympics. Um, but I had set this sort of ran relatively obscure record um, that no one knew about, but we figured it out eventually that I had run 19 consecutive years of breaking the four minute mile last year that was. And so we figured it'd be a shame to stop at 19. Let's make it a nice round number. Right. Um, but it's been really hard to get back into the groove and actually like stick out. So this might be the hardest of all the sub fours that I've ever run if I'm able to do it. But on new year's Eve on the stroke of midnight, it would in theory be 2022. So that would make it 20 years straight. So what we're actually doing is we've created an event called the midnight mile gala. And it's at the new balance track and field center and of the armory. 
in New York City and it's a gala event on New Year's Eve, which happens to have some track meet, some track races in the background, culminating with my race. And then we have a massive after party and we've got a beer garden and a DJ and a dance floor and gala tables on the infield. And we're trying to make it a big New Year's Eve celebration um, that happens to have a couple of track races and community and youth and, and a couple of elite races as well. So, yeah, our, our main priority of this event um, is to raise money for the newly formed Tracksmith Foundation. Um, are you aware of Russell Dinkins or the efforts that he um, was really um, really successful in um, reinstating some cutoff track programs last year? No, I don't think I am. Can you tell me more about it? So the University of Clemson, the University of Minnesota, William and & Mary, and a couple of other uh, Universe, Brown University, some very prestigious universities in the country, and Clemson was the uni- was the national football champion. They cut the men's track and field programs off their athletic roster. So the AD said, "Yeah, we don't care about men's track anymore. Um, we need we want to save money, or would rather allocate it elsewhere." But Russell Dinkins, as a gentleman who ran track at University of Pennsylvania, and um, so you know, at Princeton University. And he said, no, I'm going to fight and fight and fight and help these alumni groups bring it back. And all four universities had their programs reinstated through his efforts. And we supported his efforts behind the scenes last year. And our foundation, which has just been formed, has announced Russell as our, um, he's going to be the leading the foundation. Um, and we're going to try and double down on those efforts and do more proactive work as opposed to reactive um, to make sure that athletic directors know that cutting track programs is a no-go and that track is here to stay in the sport of track and NCA track and field. And um, we also want to help general youth participation um, at all levels of the sport as well. So that's what this event's going to be raising funds for. And hopefully I can set a world record as part of the event. And um, we're going to have it live streamed and Steve Cram's going to be commentating my race um, for to put a sort of historical perspective on the event, and that should be a great, great time. Well, I had heard about those universities cutting their track teams, and then I had heard more about them reinstating those teams. And, and I'm glad to know that, uh, you know, some background on that and, and how it was able to to move forward like that, and also that you guys are supporting through the Tracksmith Foundation additional proactive measures. So hopefully additional track teams around the country are not cut and we can maintain that. Uh, I know for me, being on a track team in college was one of the best experiences of my life. And and I would definitely support any effort to keep those teams up and running so that more people can have that opportunity. Well, I don't think people realize how dangerous of a precedent it would have set had Clemson stuck with that situation because they have the resources being a football national champion every other athletic director in the country would have considered, hey, this is an easy sport that no one's going to put up a fight for. Let's do that as well. Um, And so, yeah, we're here to stay and we're going to fight as hard as we can and any support that we can get. So in addition to buying gala tables or general admission tickets, one can also make donations directly to the Tracksmith Foundation as well. But you can find out all that information on the tracksmith.com website. Wonderful. Well, Nick, I'm going to include notes and links to all of that in our show notes on strength running so that folks can check it out. Uh, I'll have more information right after our conversation in the outro to the podcast so people can learn more about the gala event. It sounds amazing. 
this is something that will grow the sport. Combining a wonderful party with fast track races in the background, I'm excited about it, and I hope the running community will rally around it. Nick, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. Take care, mate. A big thank you to the one and only Nick Willis for sharing his wisdom with us. If you happen to live near New York City and want to attend the Midnight Mile Gala, tickets are now available on the Tracksmith website. I also want to thank our sponsors who are helping make this show possible. Inside Tracker wants to help you do what you love for life. They want you to be a successful, healthy runner for decades. They were founded in 2009 by aging, genetics, and biometric scientists to help you analyze your body's data and get a good idea of how well you're responding to all that hard work you're doing. Understanding your body's different biomarkers, everything from stress hormones to testosterone to vitamin D, can help you figure out if you're overtraining or optimally training. But the best part is that they give you personalized, optimal ranges for each of these biomarkers and a whole host of ways to improve them through diet, lifestyle, or exercise changes. I've personally gotten three ultimate tests from them, and every time, I learn something new about myself. And now for a limited time, you can get 25% off any test at insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning. This represents a big chunk of savings, so stack the odds in your favor and give yourself every advantage with a personalized blood test. Go to insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning to save 25% today. All right, thank you all so much for listening and reviewing the show. I appreciate all of you, and we'll be in touch very soon. 